I'm going to be talking about creation evolution, a changing of the tide. Um, up until about 1800, it was widely believed that the earth was young. The six days of uh, creation meant just that. Um, the flood was a global flood. And then something changed. Something called the Enlightenment came in. And Christianity has been retreating ever since then until about 1950, the 50s, actually about 1961. And then a lot of people realized they looked at the damages. We had huge amount of liberal churches. We had universities started by Christians. Uh, practically every university in the U.S. was started by Christians, by the way. And they've gone totally secular and even anti-Christian, et cetera, et cetera. You know, they put it all together, and one of the big problems that caused this was evolution. And I'm not going to go through all the gory details of this. I'm going to be more positive. Things are changing. There's been a renaissance in thought uh, in the creation-evolution issue, uh, mainly in science. And I've been dealing with this issue myself for 40 years as a researcher in earth science. So as a researcher, I know what the problems are, what our good points are, etc. So with that introduction, um, I'm, well, you all know what Genesis <clears throat> 1 to 11, that's where the big problem is. Because the culture says that uh, the universe is 13.8 billion years old. And uh, after uh, three uh, generations of exploding stars and the dust comes back to form another star, the sun's a third generation star. Uh, 4.5 billion years ago, the solar system uh, reformed and so on, and life formed about 3.8 billion years ago. And it's been slow, steady progress up to people. That's the story that the culture teaches us, and it's dogmatic as can be. It's, it's taken as a fact by the culture. But there's a different view. It's a biblical worldview. There's what, uh, it's mainly Genesis 1 and 2, the creation, and Genesis 6 to 9, the flood. Anyway, I'm not used to looking behind me to see where I'm at. I'm used to having my computer up in front, so I'm be reading it here. Anyway, what is some of the evolutionary bombs? Genesis 1 to 11 is a myth disproven by science. The days of Genesis 1 are considered to be long periods of time, maybe billions of years each day. Without Genesis 3 being real history, we don't need a savior. The flood was only a local flood, or as some have said, maybe a tranquil flood. And the church has lost tremendous influence in the culture. And it can be documented that millions have left the church over evolution and millions of years. But the tide is changing. It's turning. Christians are waking up to the devastation and educating their children and grandchildren. Answers to questions from the culture are being provided. And there are many new creationist ministries. There are hundreds of resources out there. There are websites you can go look on to get lots of information. I will give you uh, some of these websites. Some of them have 10,000 articles on it. I'm going to approach this as um, what, uh, some of the things we've learned, major conclusions. 
Evolution is not science because it is not observed, therefore it is not a fact. And this is really simple, more, simpler than you would you'd imagine. This is a quote from Christianity Today. These are typical quotes you see even in Christian circles. Evolution is an easily observable phenomenon that has been documented beyond any reasonable doubt. What would you do with that when you read that in, a, in Christianity Today? Do they have the evidence to say that? Well, you know, it boils down to a definition. What is the definition of evolution? What is the definition of science? And you know, those are very slippery terms. What Bobby Ross was thinking of is evolution is those slight changes in types of dogs or the beaks of finches in the Galapagos Islands, such things as that. But that's really not evolution at all. It's a shuffling of genes in reproduction. That's all it is. And artificial selection, uh, where man selects good qualities and, and they become predominant and you get breeds. That's really not evolution. That's just playing with genes already created there. Evolution Evolution is, is nothing, it can be defined as nothing, according to John Horner, nothing more than or less than change with time. That's another definition, but that's a poor definition because everything changes. All I have to do is look in a mirror uh, once a month and I see change with time. No, evolution is, uh, uh, starts from molecules in the soupy sea and over about 3.2 billion years, they finally get together to form the multicellular organisms about 550 million years ago. And then multicellular organisms evolve up to, to the first vertebrae, which is the fish, and so on up through amphibians, uh, reptiles, mammals to us. That's what evolution is. That is what the big issue is about. But you know, there's a big problem with, with that as admitted by, even by an evolutionist. David Kitt said in the journal Evolution, evolution, at least in the sense that Darwin speaks of it, cannot be detected within the lifetime of a single observer. If it can't be detected, it's not observed going on today. And of course, it's not repeatable. Those are two features of science. And evolution violates them both. So evolution is not science. It's the history of the worldview of naturalism is what it is. Here's another way of looking at it. Oops, there's the big picture. I got I got to change here. I can't see what I'm doing there. That's the evolutionary tree of life from the single-celled organism all the way up. Okay, this is the way I think of science is in the present, evolution's in the past. Science is repeatable, evolution's one time. Science is observable, but evolution's not seen. So it can't be science. We've also learned by modern biology the extreme complexity of everything. Therefore, creation must be true because to try. You can do probability theory on these and for, show that not even one step in the evolutionary sequence of life can happen in trillions of years of time. You can show that easily by simple probability. For instance, if you saw that on a beach, would you think that come about by chance, by wind and sun and so forth? 
What about this? This is a sand sculpture on a Florida beach. You think about that can come about by chance? Well, one cell in our body is enormously more complex than that sand sculpture. In fact, uh, one atheist became a, uh, 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 at least a deist, a, a believer in creation by the, by the in modern information on the cell, what it does. Read something about cell biology and just blow your mind away what the cells do. And we have trillions of cells in our body that all work together to do what we do. And then there's the DNA molecule that has, uh, I think, three billion bits of information that, that tells us whether we're a human or a dog or, or anything like that. It's all built in as a code of four letters. And the code is so complex, it can fill up 500 books in a library of information or 1,000 books. That's how complex it is. That can't come about by chance. And modern science, especially in biology, is showing that more and more. In fact, in the creation movement, we have thousands of scientists. I would say a good percentage of them are biologists. In fact, that's where the evolution first developed in biology. But it's biologists that especially see the problems with evolution. And there's a, a picture of what they think a protein molecule looked like from physics today. It, a pro, you have uh, tens of thousands of these protein molecules in your body. They're enzymes. And the way they work, they speed up reactions in your body. You might have 50 of them that digest uh, uh, proteins in your body, in your stomach. Anyway, that's what they look. And they've got to be perfect. The shape of them is perfect. See how complicated that is? And, it, and the perfect perfection depends on the chain of amino acids. And they fold on each other by, because of side uh, electro, electrical forces. Anyway, this is so complicated that this isn't going to evolve by chance either. And of course, here's that uh, famous atheist, Anthony Flew, for 40 years would debate Christians about uh, uh, favoring atheism. He finally said, uh, wrote a book called There Is a God, and he would have done a, a There Is No God a few years before. How the world's most notorious atheist changed his mind because of the complexity of the cell. And you know, the Bible says this right from the beginning. Uh, Paul wrote, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood through what has been made so that people are without excuse. The creation should tell everybody that God at least exists. Another major conclusion, millions of years are not facts, but interpretations with many problems. And here's another uh, statement from Christianity Today. It's a quote, though. I don't think the, the, readers, uh, uh, the editors of Christianity Today necessarily believe it, but this is a guy named Carl Giberson. He said, agree among yourselves that the earth is old since science has proved it. Oh, yeah? Now, when you dig up a fossil, for instance, this bone, do you think it has a date uh, that comes with it? like 65 million years old? No, the date is an inference based on the present 
day science. In the 65 million years is the interpretation, the actual evidence of science is the bone and the sediments that the bone is found in. The only rocks that have dates on them are these right here. When people put their graduating year up there on, on the cliff. Most dating methods give young ages. You don't know that. It's the radiometric dates that give the old ages mainly. And we are finding answers to the methods that give old ages. For instance, by the way, there's a lot of research that still needs to be done in this area. Diamonds. How many, well, no, I'm not going to. The carbon-14 method dates carbon, not rocks. And so it'll date coal, it'll date di diamonds, which is pure carbon. Now, diamonds are considered to be uh, several billion years old. And carbon-14 is a radioactive type of uh, carbon. And this decays back with a half-life of 5,730 years. So within 100,000 years, any uh, object with carbon, with carbon-14 in it, should have decayed totally in, in less than 100,000 years. We can't detect any more carbon after 100,000 years. So if you find carbon-14 in anything, it's less than 100,000 years old. Well, guess what? We found carbon-14 in coal dozens of times. We have done it. The secular scientists have done it. And coal is supposed to be 15 million to 350 million years old. And yet we find detectable carbon-14 in it. So meaning it's less than 100,000. There's something wrong somewhere. But you know, they, 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 what they usually do is say it's contaminated, and, which means that uh, you had young carbon seep down into the coal, and that's what they measured. You know, when someone takes a sample of coal, they're looking for the purest and the, uh, the, the best sample they can get. So they, don't, they know when there's a crack going through it that new carbon will, will seep down into it. But could this happen? This can happen a few times, but could it happen dozens of times? No. But we humored them. We dated diamonds. <laughs> diamonds are pure carbon. And guess what? We found carbon-14 in all the diamonds that we analyzed. You know what that means? Diamonds, which are supposed to be billions of years old, are less than 100,000. So all that millions and billions of years are, are, are not real. There's lots of, ev lots of more evidence, but the... The whole area of geochronology is exceedingly complicated. Another major conclusion we found, creation science has much evidence for the global flood. They used to say it was a tranquil flood, but then they realized that, that floods aren't tranquil. So the local flood is a very popular idea within Christian circles today. But there's a huge amount of evidence that the, the flood was global. For instance, uh, let's see if I can, I don't know, that won't work. Does this have a clicker? I mean a pointer? Ah, if I could see what I'm doing backwards. Yeah, anyway, this bottom layer in the Grand Canyon is called the Tabit Sandstone. That sandstone 
right down there, which we find up in our area. It's called, it's given different names in different states because different researchers did the research and didn't know they were connected. It's called the Flathead Sandstone up in our area. And here is a picture of the Flathead Sandstone in the Southern Teton Mountains. Right there. Now the Tapit Sandstone and it's the Flathead Sandstone and, and its equivalents are found over half of North America. This is only for mainly the United States, but it goes up into Northeast Canada also. That's a sandstone right above the granites and igneous and uh, metamorphic rocks of the upper crust, right on top. It's about 200 feet thick, it's, it's, and it's a, a very unique sandstone. It's coarse grain with uh, small quartz uh, pebbles in it. Now, let me ask you, what processes would form a sandstone like this over half of North America? Would it be a local flood? Now, the secular scientists, after they threw out Noah's flood, said, we got we to explain all the rocks and fossils by present processes we see going on today. Well, what kind of present processes? Well, we, can, we have, do have river floods. We have earthquakes going off, tsunamis, um, and things like this. Well, what present process is going to form a layer of sand of fairly even thickness over half of North America? It's not. This is typical of what we expect in the Genesis flood, laying sediment down over huge areas, one layer on, on top of each other on, on, in rapid succession. Let's go back to the Grand Canyon. Another feature you see in the Grand Canyon, by the way, I use the Grand Canyon as an example because it's a vertical slice. You can see the sedimentary rocks. And it's in the sedimentary rocks and the fossils in there is, uh, is the evidence they usually use to put it over on people that evolution's a fact. I'm just going through all these areas very quickly, by the way. If you want more information, I'll give you websites. Anyway, if you look at this, these horizontal layers from down in here to the top, that's about 4,000 feet of horizontal sedimentary layers. That represents 250 million years of deposition in the in the secular time scale. But notice how even and flat they are, one on top of another. And here is the same sequence, or not the same, a very similar sequence in the southern Teton Mountains as the bottom two-thirds of the Grand Canyon. In other words, the bottom two-thirds of the sedimentary rock you see in the Grand Canyon is up high by, by uplift in the southern Teton Mountains, given different names. And when you look at that strata, where's all the erosion in the, those hundreds of millions of years? Erosion so fast that all of North America could be eroded to sea level in only 10 million years. That's the rate of erosion going on right now. We can flatten North America to sea level in 10 million years. If erosion's that fast on a million year time scale, where's all the evidence of erosion in those layers? They don't see them. They're called the flat gaps. This is typical worldwide of sedimentary rocks when you see cliffs. In fact, um, three secular geologists wrote in 2007 in the book, The Geological Chronicle, Jackson Hole and the Teton Range, the regularity and parallelism of the layers in well-exposed sections, which I just showed you, suggest that all these rocks were deposited in a single uninterrupted sequence. 
Do we know of such a thing? Do we have something like that in our worldview? <laughs> it's called the Genesis flood. But they don't believe their eyes because they, they stretch that all out by their fossil dating system to 200 million years. And for the bottom two-thirds of Grand, uh, Grand Canyon, it's about 250. Also, fossils, when you look at fossils, they get, give evidence of rapid deposition or rapid burial. For instance, this is a picture of an ichthyosaur, which is a, a, a marine lizard that was uh, fossilized in the point of giving birth. That's not an extra tail. That's pretty rapid fossilization, isn't it? And when you looked at, at shelled organisms, not, by the way, 95% of the fossils in which there, there's probably, must be over a trillion fossils in the sedimentary rocks. When you look at the, 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 the marine organisms, which are 95% of the fossils, most of them that are bivalves, that is they have two hinges, are mostly closed. Like these typical fossils right here of clams, oysters, and a, a clam-like organism called a brachiopod. What does this imply? Well, we know from today that, that, that the hinges that, that keep the shell closed will rot after death. And within a matter of hours to days, the shell opens up. But the fact that we find these closed-shelled uh, bivalves all over the earth, I have some from Sweden, I have some from Montana, that are closed-shelled indicates rapid burial, again, supporting the flood. Another major conclusion from our study of 50 years of research by many creation scientists in all areas of science I'm in earth science, there's others in astronomy, there's others in biology, there's others in anthropology. The flood is the great time cruncher. I'm going to give the example of the ice age, which I've worked on for 40 years. What do I mean by the great time cruncher? Well, when the, the so-called enlightenment came in, and by the way, the word enlightenment is um, written, is, is revisionist history, because they called the ages before that the dark ages. Those are the ages when Christ, the Christian worldview dominated. The Dark Ages weren't dark, and the Enlightenment wasn't an Enlightenment. It was more of a rejection of God and his Bible. And then they set up science and all kinds of things. Actually, science was started by Christians. <laughs> Another thing that a lot of people don't know. But anyway, uh, when the Enlightenment came in, they threw out the flood, and they looked at hundreds of processes out there that said, well, at present processes, present rates, it's going to take millions of years. Oil is going to take millions of years to form. Coal is going to take millions of years. Everything is going to take millions of years. Soils, there's several hundred of these things that are going to take millions of years. I'm sure you've been taught these. One of these is the Ice Age. And what I'm saying is that when you bring the flood back into your mind as a real event, everything happens quickly. The flood can produce coal rapidly. It can produce oil rapidly. And after the flood, it produces an ice age rapidly. In fact, the ice age is considered a, a major challenge to creation science, our, our time scale. In an anti-creation book, Arthur Strahler said, increasing the duration of the ice age by a factor of about 10 greatly increases the stress upon creation scientists who must compress the events of 15 million years into 4,000 years of post-flood time. 
We got it right. I've read a lot of anti-creation books in earth science. I just got through reading one on the Grand Canyon, claiming that, that it shows that it's got old age, it's, it's a monument to old ages. Um, most of the time when I read these books, they don't get our position correct. They set up a lot of straw men. But this guy who was an atheist, he did a lot of reading and got our position correct. And the, what he especially got correct is it was in post-flood time. And the background behind this is that they suddenly believed the Antarctic ice sheet was uh, 10 times their age. 10 times the age. And it says, well, well, if we increase that 10 times, that increases the stress on us who must explain the ice age. How do we explain the ice age? See, they're always challenging us on these issues. But here's what I do as a researcher. I apply this verse. I, this is a theme verse for research. Examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. And, I, and I'll stress the word carefully there because if you read popular literature or don't investigate an issue enough, you'll know just enough to get in trouble because the society is filled with misinformation. Filled with it. And if you don't examine everything carefully, and a lot of times you have to go to original sources to do this, you're going to get into trouble and not find out the truth. So this is what I do. I gather the facts as much as I can, the observed facts. So 90% of my reading is earth science journals. I read the latest earth science journals and, other, and past issues when I'm doing a research project, which I'm always doing about five at the same time. And what I'm able to do is separate their storytelling, evolution of millions of years, from the actual data. What do we actually have out there? What is the observed data? That is a science. And I'm taking that and I am reinterpreting within the biblical worldview. I'm holding fast to that which is good. I'm holding fast to the Bible and to, as Jesus is my Lord and Savior. And then I examine all these things carefully. And the first thing I find is that when they challenge us, it's a challenge to them also, but they, they kind of bluff and, and kind of paper it over with more hypotheses. Uh, coal, for instance. They say this was formed in a peat swamp. Uh, peat being uh, unoxidized uh, plant matter that's disintegrated some. It has a lot of uh, space in it. So you've got to compress it 10 times to form coal. The peat swamp theory has a tremendous amount of evidence against it. So they really can't explain coal either. And coal is an amazing thing. It's compressed plant matter. And some coal seams are 200 feet thick of almost pure coal. Like the Powder River Basin in southeast Montana and northeast Wyoming has enough coal in it to supply our energy needs for 100 years or so much coal. And, it's, and some of those seams are very pure. How are you going to form that in, with present processes? They have lots of problems. Find, also, you find marine organisms in that coal, too. So anyway, I don't want to get off on that. But I want to talk about the Ice Age, which I know more about. The Ice Age, I found, is a, a mystery to them. What present processes of climate change are going to form ice to form over 30% of the continents, continental area, in the mid and high latitudes? They don't know. 
And it was admitted, it's been admitted by many. In fact, this is one of the latest quotes I picked up from the, the scientific literature, namely the journal Nature. Perhaps the longest standing puzzle in the Earth sciences is what caused the Northern Hemisphere ice sheets to come and go. They believe in multiple ice ages, by the way. So it's a mystery to them. That's why they have over 60 theories on the cause of the ice age. This is generally how it, it, it works from the Bible. See, the Bible, uh, the flood set up the conditions for an ice age with all kinds of volcanism, putting particles up in the stratosphere that reflect sunlight back to space, cooling the land. And the warm oceans after the flood would evaporate much more moisture at mid and high latitudes to be dumped quickly on the land. So you have rapid uh, evaporation from warm oceans, uh, volcanic ash blocking the sun and falling as snow and ice. And I've been able to time the ice age. The time for the ice age is about 700 years. The ice sickness was about 2,300 feet in the northern hemisphere and 4,000 feet in Antarctica. And so just using different variables from the flood, I was able to time. And by the way, the idea of multiple ice ages is, is an assumption on their part. Another major conclusion, this whole issue of evolution and the millions of years is not based on evidence, like I said. It's based on a worldview. The worldview is how you view the world, essentially. And when you look at data in the present with a worldview of evolution in millions of years, you're going to see evolution in millions of years in those rocks because you've been trained to see it like that. But there's a whole different way of looking at it. And the modern creation movement has discovered this. We don't have to believe in evolution. We don't have to believe in millions of years. We can believe the straightforward teaching from the Bible. We can believe it, all of it. For instance, the Christian worldview with the, the 6,000 years of history approximately, through the seven seas of history, the creation, the corruption, the catastrophe, the confusion, Christ, the cross, and consummation. That's how we view the world. And that's what thousands of us are doing across the earth, by the way. It's just not in the United States. But the Non-Christian worldview, the, uh, the naturalistic worldview or the atheistic worldview looks at the world as slow processes of change over millions of years. And when you look at, at the fossil record and what goes on now, you see massive death, bloodshed, suffering, disease. You see evidence of cancer in dinosaurs, uh, et cetera, et cetera, over millions of years. That's the secular naturalistic worldview. It's a worldview issue. Not an evidence issue. Another major con conclusion is Genesis cannot be reinterpreted without destroying the whole Bible as God's word and the gospel message. That's what some Christians have realized, that um, God is real, the, the Bible's true, but they come to believe that evolutions and millions of years are true too. So they try to fit it in. You know, and before 1800, there were very few Christian scholars that, 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 that even thought this way until the Enlightenment came. They threw out Noah's flood, brought in millions of years. So they brought in a lot of ideas that have done a lot of problems. And I think uh, 
And a lot of Christians don't see this very easy. The gap theory, the day-age theory, and other ideas on how to fit millions of years in evolution into the Bible. But the atheists see this quite well. It's a big problem. And I'm saying we don't have to, to, this is all unnecessary. Genesis can defend itself, even in, in science. This is a quote from Frank Zeller in a debate with William uh, Lane Craig. The most devastating thing that biology did to Christianity was the discovery of biological evolution. Now that we know that Adam and Eve never were real people, the central myth of Christianity is destroyed. If there never was an Adam and Eve, there never was an original sin. <laughs> so you gotta have some real people to, that fall, you see, in Genesis chapter three. If there never was an original sin, there's no need of salvation. If there's no need of salvation, there's no need of a savior. And I submit that puts Jesus, historical or otherwise, into the ranks of the unemployed. I think that evolution is absolutely the death knell of Christianity. It's really the, the atheist uh, view of how we got here without God. Why should we believe that? Why should we fit into the Bible? Especially when you realize that the mechanism of evolution is survival of the fittest. Nature red in tooth and claw, as one poet said. Why would we think that that's God's way of creating? A God of love creating through, through mass death, survival, extinctions, as we see in the fossil record? Here's another uh, a guy, Ronald Numbers. Used to be a, a, a young earth creationist, but lost his faith going to college. And he lost his faith by looking at the Yellowstone so-called fossil forests up there. He said, with evolution, you don't start out with anything perfect. There's no perfect state from which to fall. That makes the whole plan of salvation silly because there never was a fall. This is quoted in World by him. The important point is that, that without an historical fall, with an historical Adam and Eve, we don't need a, a, a historical savior. We, don't, we maybe need a teacher, but we don't need a savior. See, it kind of, it, 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 destroys the uh, foundation of the gospel if you accept evolution. But many people aren't logical enough to see that issue. The atheists see it, but we don't. And, and one of the first things that they tried to do, clear back probably before 1800, was try to fit deep time or millions of years into the days of uh, Genesis. Anyway, Genesis... Uh, one is like this, God called the light day and the darkness he called night and there was evening and there was morning one day and there was evening and morning a second day, so on and so forth. You know, every time that the word day is used in the Old Testament, other than Genesis 1, and it's over 200 times, it always means a solar day. There's, now there's a few that mean the day of the Lord or a vague period of time. But when you use the day with the number and evening and morning, and it's done dozens of times in the rest of the Old Testament, it always means a solar day. So it's pretty clear that the, that the translation of the word day, which can have different meanings, is a 24-hour solar day. So trying to fit millions of years into that is, really stretches your interpretation of, of, the, of the Bible. Oh, yeah, I have this. 
Day plus a number, 410 times, always means an ordinary day. Evening and morning, 38 times, together with the word day, means an ordinary day. Evening and morning, 23 times, with the word day, means an ordinary day. Night, with the, the, the word day, 52 times, always means an ordinary day. I'd say the word day means 24-hour day, and that can be defended, even scientifically. Why, and, but people question only Genesis. When they try to fit millions of years into why don't they question other areas where day is used in the rest of the Old Testament? It's always Genesis. Why Genesis? Well, because it conflicts with the worldview of the culture. It believes millions of years are a fact. And not only that, uh, even in the New Testament, there's references to creation. That if you're going to change Genesis 1 to 11 to, to be a, something other than what it, uh, the plain meaning says. And by the way, it's written in a historical narrative, like the other historical books of the Bible, unlike uh, areas that are poetic, like Psalms. So it's, it's meant to be interpreted as straightforward historical narrative. And there's references to the Genesis 1 to 11 in other parts of the New Testament that if we do, uh, change Genesis 1 to 11 to believe that uh, it's not straightforward. We'd have to change other uh, areas of the New Testament. Like there's over 100 references to Genesis in the New Testament. We'd have to do something with those. And by the way, this has happened hundreds, if not millions of times by Christians who, who, who want to believe what the culture tells us. The 60 references to Genesis 1 to 11 in the New Testament. The New Testament refers to all 11 chapters of Genesis 1 to 11. And Jesus himself referred to Genesis 1 to 11 16 times. And why? Because they were referring to real history. For instance, in this verse right here, Matthew 24, 37 to 39, For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. Just not a few in, the, in a local flood in, say, the Tigris-Euphrates Valley. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. Jesus believed that Noah was a real person, that the flood was real, and it took all of them away. And as Mark Amonrud has taught, there was probably, could have been billions of people on the earth before the flood that have to be spread all over the earth. But he's also using the flood as an analogy to a second coming. In Genesis, I mean, Revelation 1-7, it says, when he comes back, all eyes will see him. So it's going to be a global coming back. Now, he's not going to compare a global coming back with a local flood, is he? No, Jesus believed in a global flood. And if Jesus believes in it, we certainly should too. And believing in a global flood changes a whole huge amount of things with, with, the, with evolution and, and millions of years. Totally changes what the culture says. And here's another verse that we have to deal with if we believe that um, um, there is millions of years of evolution and death and suffering before man fell in Genesis 3. It says there was no death before man sinned. And this is applying to animals, but you look at other verses and apply what happened to animals happened to man also. Or I should say what happened to man happened to animals. 
Therefore, just through one man, sin entered the world and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sin. Romans 8, for instance, and other verses. In fact, in Genesis, it said when the, it was created very good and the animals ate plants. It says that right there in Genesis 1. So there was no death. But if we have to bring death and suffering for millions of years before man came on the scene, by the, by the way, the evolutionists believe that we came on the scene about 200,000 years ago. So we're really late in the evolutionary story. But, we, but before we came on, there was massive death and suffering, extinction and so forth, suffering. And we'd have to put that all before man was created and before sin. That contradicts what Romans 5.12 says. Also, sin is, uh, uh, some evolutionists think death is the way we, we evolved. This is how we got here. So it's kind of a good thing in a way. The Bible says it's not. The wages of sin is death. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. So death is not a good thing. It's not a way, how God, one of the parts of, of uh, ways of evolution cr uh, creating us. Another major conclusion how much time do I have? Okay. Well, I don't even see a clock. Okay. Thank you. Another major conclusion, evolution has had devastating effects in the culture. The culture's imbibed it. And how is this? Well, because ideas have consequences. These are just not ideas thought of by, by scientists in their ivory tower, they're applied. Ideas are a lot of times applied. They have consequences. And kind of summing up, summing up a lot of these, um, it kind of boils down to this. Who sets the rules of how you act? If we have Adam in our ancestry, God sets the rules and there's consequences. But if we have ape in our ancestry, Man sets his rules. And when man sets the rules, if you know much about history, it's uh, pretty bleak. So if you set the rules, you can um, uh, dream up a, a ways to uh, say, like, my race is the master race, for instance, and I'm going to do away with Jews. Yeah, Hitler was an evolutionist. And, and it's well known that, he was a, that evolution is a strong factor in his belief of the so-called master race and so forth. I'm not going to go into these gory details. You can learn more about it. But I'm just going to advertise, I think, one book. If you have questions about this, there's lots of questions. There's hundreds of them. Sometimes when we go out and speak, we get the same questions. So we put the questions with brief answers in the answers book, which you, I get down at the library or the resource center. I want to leave you with this one verse. Kind of sums up the way we should be thinking. 1 Corinthians 2.5 Your faith should not rest on the wisdom of men, but the power of God. Evolution is explaining how we got here without God. It's the wisdom of man. In fact, read all of 1 Corinthians chapters 1, 2, and 3, and it will give you an idea of what is going on in the culture. Our faith should rest in the power of God who can create real easy. He can do a, low, a global flood real easy, no problem. And here are some of those websites that I was telling you. If 
you want to write these down. Our local uh, Creatius organization website, oops, they're not up there, are they? It's creationsciencedefense.com. That's where we advertise when we're going to have creation conferences here every two years. I have a website, michael.ords.net. And on that, I have two large free ebooks you can read. The third one, creation.com, is from Creation Ministries International. It has over 10,000 articles on it. It has a search engine for you to, to, to search. Like, say someone asks you a question you can't answer, which is not too unusual uh, because we get, if you talk to secular people, and if evolution's a big thing, it is with a large percentage of them, they will ask you questions, and you can't be on top of everything. So you can go to creation.com, type in, in the search engine, dinosaurs. <laughs> It'll probably give you a couple of hundred uh, things to read. And the, these articles are, are at, for all levels, children's articles to layman's articles to technical articles, something for everybody. Then there's answersingenesis.org. And then there's the Creation Research Society, creationresearch.org. Then Institute Creation Research, icr.org. And if you want to do some touring of the Western U.S. from a group that, that, that has tours, creationencounters.com. If you want to check out some geology, 